Alright, so you can see the title today is Worship. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And just by way of review, two weeks ago, we talked about another facet. We've been sort of talking about these little facets of the Christmas story, right? And so two weeks ago, we talked about Mary. Because Mary has a role in this story that we review every year. And we were really talking about how... How we see in the story of Mary that God shows up and brings blessings. She brings, he brings blessings to her and he brings blessings to us. And we talked about that and how that leads us to joy. And then last week, as was mentioned earlier, we talked about the story with the shepherds and how God really reveals his glory. And so we talked a whole bunch about glory and how God shows up and leads us to joy through his glory in different ways and different means. And so today, we're going to move over to chapter 2 of Matthew, which, as Brad alluded to, is the story of the Magi, the wise men. Those guys are part of the story, right? We're all familiar with this. We see it everywhere. It's all part of the Christmas story. But today, we're going to look at how these guys connect with the idea of worship, and what that means. So let's just go ahead and read the passage. I'll have it on the screen. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles or on your phone with your Bible app, however you do it. So I'll just read it here. Starting there in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So that takes us to verse 12. Now, this is probably, in some ways, for almost all of us, whether we have a church background or not a church background, this is probably a fairly familiar story, right? We see the three kings on everything. They're always this is a great symbol of Christmas, and we got it, and everybody sort of knows about it. But sometimes I think this maybe is the one aspect of the story that has collected more sort of auxiliary legends and myths and information around it than is actually there, right? So I thought today we maybe would start with the question, you know, why did God pick the wise men? Like, who were these guys? What was going on with them? And I think the first place to start is maybe to say, well, what were they not, right? Because there's so many things I think that we maybe think of these guys that the scripture doesn't tell us that they are, right? So let's kind of walk through a few of those things. What they were probably not, right? And some of this we, we don't know. But one of those things is a group of only three men. We don't actually know that's the case, right? 
It's funny, when, when I was growing up, I was part of why I love the Christmas season because it's always a lot of fun in the Miller household when I was a kid. And my parents, my mom, was, well, both of my parents were not really into playing a lot of music. And our house is not like that. Like, I feel like uh, Amazon Music or Pandora or something is like, I was always playing, especially at Christmas. There's all these Christmas songs going. Well, that wasn't the case in the Miller household when I was growing up. But at Christmas time, my mom would say, well, we need some Christmas music. And so we had an eight-track player. I don't think it was in. It was old, even then. And there's, they, had a, they had a couple of eight-track cassettes that they'd put in there, and one of them was Handel's Messiah, and the other one was a bunch of Christmas songs. And one of those Christmas songs that stuck in my mind was, you know, these like sort of, you know, baritone men, we three kings, you know, and it was just, so it's always stuck in my mind, so I think, oh yeah, there's a we three kings, that's like in my mind, right? But it doesn't say there was three of them. I go, where do we get the three? Well, the three comes from the fact that there were three gifts, and so it's just sort of developed into, well, one guy to carry each gift, right? And so that's how there's three. But we don't actually know that there were three. How many were there? It's unknown. There could have been 20, there could have been 100, there could have been two. We don't know. Another thing is, if we don't know what their names are. Now, there's been legends like Casper and Balthazar and Melchior and all kinds of other names have been ascribed to these guys, but we have no idea what their names are, right? We read the passages, there were no names in there, right? So that's another legend. We don't know what their names were. Again, who knows if there were three, right? Another thing is, they were camel riders, right? It seems like every single picture, it's like, oh, there's a camel, well, it doesn't say they came on camels, and we don't know that's the case. And in fact, if we look at history, we see that where these guys were from, Persia, and we'll talk about that in a minute, the, the guys who had power and were nobles in Persia, they actually rode horses. So, we don't know. Maybe the camels, maybe they got on camels and came across the desert because they had a long way to go. But we don't know that. Maybe they took their horses. I don't know. Right? So, sorry, there were no singing camels in this story. Anyone remember this from the 80s? It's one of my favorite Christmas shows there. All right, another thing we don't know is that were they present at the birth? Right, it makes for a great nativity set, doesn't it? And they're like, well, it seems a little imbalanced if just the shepherds are there, so we've got to have these other guys who are dressed up really nice and have their camels. But in fact, if we go back to the passage, it says sometime later. And so we don't really think they were actually there, but somehow this has all gotten wrapped into the story, and you're like, well, Greg, you're just sort of facilitating that myth by talking about it as part of a Christmas series. Like, okay, I get it. But we don't really think they were there. We don't really think they were present at the birth of Jesus. We also can see later that Herod gets upset because the wise men like went on their own way and went home, and he says, well, I'm going to kill all the babies who are two years old and under. Well, if it had been just a few weeks, he wouldn't have done that. He probably would have picked one and under, but it's clearly been some amount of time, right? So they probably weren't there. They also were not accompanied by the little drummer boy. I mean, really? <laughs> It's a fun song, I know, but it's not scriptural. Sorry. All right, so a conclusion with all of this is these are all kind of neat things, little fictitious things that can get added in. I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with those things, but that's not what the scripture says. And so today we always want to go back to what does the scripture say? What can we learn from what the scripture tells us about a story like this? So what were, the, what were these guys? What do we know from the passage about these wise men? What do we know about them? Well, we know they were from the east. 
And like, well, where's the east? Like, east could be anywhere from like, you know, a foot away from me to a long way away. Well, when you understand who these guys were, you go, oh, they were from the east. They were from Persia. And so I have this little map. It's the best I could find. Uh, it's a little blurry, I know. And so Jerusalem is kind of way over there on the left side. And then they're kind of in what modern-day Iraq would be. And this would be maybe the shortest distance. We today would think of Persia really as Iran, which would be a little bit further away. Regardless, it's about 1,000 miles from where they were to Bethlehem. Right? So we go, okay, they are from the east. From the east, so they're not Jews from Palestine, and they're not the Chinese from the Orient. They're coming from in the middle, right? the Persians. That's where they come from. We also see from other translations, they're called Magi. These guys who go, well, what is that? Well, that was a Greek word that meant wise men. It's a Greek word that was used there in the times of the New Testament, and it was referred to a priestly class of people from Persia. A priestly class of people from Persia. Now, we are quite certain that this group of people is the same group of people that appears in the Old Testament. Oh, really? These guys show up in the Old Testament? What was that? Well, they were descendants of wise men, and they're in Persia, and they had descended down from a group who was present there in the Persian of the Babylonian empires. And now maybe it's starting to ring a bell for you, and we think back to, oh, a story from the Old Testament was Daniel. Because remember, Dan- oh, Daniel in the lion's den, right. Well, remember, Daniel is there with the Israelites, and they're in captivity in Babylon. And Daniel gets sort of promoted up into this circle of wise men. And in the circle of wise men, there he is. And I don't know if you remember the story. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he's really upset. So he calls his wise men in, his, his magi. He calls them in and he goes, hey, tell me what my dream meant. And they were like, well, okay, tell us what your dream was. And he goes, no, if you really know what it means, you're going to know what my dream was without me telling you. And they're like, well, nobody can do that. And he goes, fine, well, then I'm going to kill you. And they're like, oh, no. So they go and they get Daniel, and they bring Daniel in, and Daniel prays, and he talks to the one true God, and he comes in and he says, king, here's the deal. Here's what your dream was, and here's what it meant. And he goes, okay, I won't kill this class of wise men. So Daniel sort of saved these guys. And here they are, descended on down through time, and they're coming back to worship Jesus. I think that's pretty cool. Another thing we know about these guys is they were individuals who watched the night sky. We saw a star in the east. Right? It, it wasn't their hobby. This was a thing these guys did, and they were skilled in astronomy. Have you ever thought about what ancient astronomy must have been like? Like today, right, we have all these computer models and, and government agencies and all this stuff. And in fact, I think you can go and you could be like, all right, I'm going to pick any point in time ever and see what the sky looked like from any point on earth. We could do that. They couldn't do that. They just had to sort of track things. And so basically it means every night you go out and you look at the stars and you kind of mark where things are and how are things moving and what's going on. And So these guys knew what they were doing. They were very familiar with the night sky. They were very familiar. That's what they did. So what did they see? Right? They say, we saw a star in the east. Well, what is that? All it says is a star. So we don't know what it is. And so there's a lot of theories that go into, well, what did they see? Some say, well, that was a star. Oh, okay, maybe it was a specific star that rose at a certain time and they knew it was, sort of it was coming or it was a surprise to them or whatever. We don't know, that's one option. Another option is some other sort of astronomical event, 
right? Like maybe the planets aligned or there was a supernova or something going on out there. They saw it. They were like, that's a sign. Another option is, hey, maybe it was kind of the, the pillar of fire. It was just God's glory. And God sort of showed up there. We talked about that last week with the shepherds and the angels and his glory shows up. Well, maybe this was God's glory in some way. It shows up in the sky, right? It sort of reaches into their world. So we don't know what it was. It could have been any of those options. And you sort of pick the one you like. But obviously they saw something. And what they saw, the first thing they saw was that God was fulfilling prophecy. God had prophesied. He through the prophets. He had done this. And one of the prophets was Daniel. So if you go back into Daniel, in chapter 9, there's this, uh, I, I won't read the passage because it can get a little bit confusing, but it was generally understood to say, hey, here is a series of time events. I'm going to go down through this series of time, and you're going to get to this time, and the Messiah is going to show up. God's son, the king, is going to sit on David's throne. He's going to show up in this time. Right, so you can imagine these wise men in this class, they sort of, okay, well, that's hundreds and hundreds of years. And so they pass this on, and these guys waiting, and all of a sudden it gets to this time, and they're going, wait a second. We ought to be looking for something, right? Because he's going to be born at some point, because we know he's coming, because good old Daniel, who saved us, gave us this prophecy that's going to show what's going to happen. Right? So they're looking for that. Well, what were they looking for? Well, if you go back to Numbers... The book of Numbers, there's another prophecy for a guy named Balaam who actually wasn't even a Jew, but God was working in his life. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he says, I see him. He's talking about the Messiah. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so this was another Old Testament prophecy that these guys would have known because Daniel and those Israelites who were in captivity had shared it with them. And so here they are waiting. They're going, okay, we're looking for a star. We know he's coming about this time. And then they see it. And then they see it. And so they respond to it. And they recognized in this that it was God showing his glory. God was showing his glory. And that's been a theme, really, in this whole series. And even in the story that we see that God shows his glory. With Mary, God shows up through his angel. And the angel says, greetings. So there's this visitation. It's like, wow, God is glorious. And the shepherds are sitting there in the field. And all of a sudden, there's all these angels. Wow, God is glorious. And here's these guys. And they're looking at the sky. And they see the glory of God somehow in some way. God shows up, and they recognize that God was showing his glory. So one other thing that these guys were, clearly, was they were individuals who worshipped God. They were individuals who worshipped God. They say that. They show up, and they're talking to Herod, and they say, We have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. This was not a passive thing. This was not an intellectual thing. This was a very real thing to cause them to pack their stuff up and travel over a thousand miles. Not in an airplane. <laughs> to go see this. And I think that brings us back to what I think is really important about this story, which is worshiping God. And it's something I think that we, each one of us, can take with us as we go forward. So let's look at worship here in this passage. I put the verses up that have worship in it. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three times here, the Greek word, see if I can get it, proskuneo, I think that's how you say it. Proskuneo is used, and what it means is it's, it's used of those who pay reverence and homage to deity, they rend, to rendering divine honors and to showing adoration. So it's very clearly the sense of paying reverence, and in this case, it's all about paying reverence to God the creator of the universe. So I think we need to ask that question. Well, is that God really worthy of reverence, homage, divine honors, and adoration? Is God really worthy of that? Some of you here might say, well, my view isn't really that, and that's okay. And there's a lot of people in the world, you're going to come across people in all different walks of life who are going to have different views on it. And I guess I would say, if you think God exists to fulfill your wishes, and you think God exists to make your life good, and God is basically just Santa Claus to you, then you're probably pretty disappointed in God, aren't you? Because you think he's supposed to do something that he's not doing. He's not what you want him to be. And so you're like, well, why would I worship? Why would I show reverence? Why would I give divine honors to someone who doesn't do what I want him to do? But if you see God as your savior, if you see him as redeeming you from the death penalty that's due to you for your sins, if you see him providing everything that is good and wonderful in your life, If you see him working everything out for good, even the hurts, even the hardships, even the trials, even the sorrows, even not getting what you want, you see him, wow, he's working all that together for my good. If you see God that way, then you'll go, yeah, he is worthy of my reverence. He is worthy of divine honors, of me paying respect to him. And you probably want to worship him wholeheartedly. Now, when I use that term worship, I know we can sometimes have kind of a narrow view. And I think it's maybe a wrong view of what worship is. And maybe I think in the church we've sort of given this grand disservice to faith in America because we've defined worship sometimes to be the time when we sing songs on a Sunday morning. And I think that's one opportunity to worship. But I think so often then it says, well, if that's worship, we've got to make it really good. And now in so many places, and we really try not to do this here, it becomes this place where you get some professionals who are really skilled and talented at their music, and they stand on stage, and the rest of us sit back and watch the light show. And we don't want to do that. And I think in America, we've sort of given a disservice to what worship really is. Worship is not a concert that we watch on Sundays. Instead, Scripture tells us that worship is giving honor to God. It's giving honor to God. That's what it is. That's what we're called to do. And if we see church as concert time, that's a problem. Sort of misassigning this term to something that it's not supposed to be. It's not very reverent to say, oh yeah, I worship God by sitting back and and watching 
not what it's supposed to be. We should be aiming for much, much more. And so, we go back to the story. We see that worship is a theme in the story. And we also see that we live in a, in a culture, in a background where maybe worship is misused or misunderstood. I think there's something that we can learn personally about worship from this story about the wise men. And so we're going to go through three things. Three things we can learn about worship from these guys. The first one is that they were intentional. When I came to worship, they were intentional. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They didn't just sort of stumble in to paying reverence to God. Like, oop, I tripped and hey, I'm going to pay worship, you know, pay in order to God. No, sometimes God works that way in people's lives, right? And maybe he's worked that way in your life. I know there's maybe times where he has where it's almost like he slaps you in the face or grabs your attention. I think of, a, of a one man who came to our church for a season and he had this experience and he was like, far from God and not close to God and he ended up in a coma. In the midst of coma, God's glory was revealed to him and he was like, wow, it's like I met God and got my attention and I need to worship him. So sometimes that'll happen, but that wasn't what was really happening here and I think that's not what really most of us are going to be waiting for or looking for in our lives. The Magi were looking for God. They were looking for God right where they're at. And so I think there's a lesson for us. is for We need to look for God right where we are. Right where we are. They were there staring at the stars and God showed up. They were looking for him. Are you looking for God right where you are in your life? As a result of this, the wise men made a life-altering choice. Right? It wasn't like, well, I'm just going to run to the market and worship God real quick. They packed up their stuff. They stopped looking at the sky. They put some of their things together and they got on their horses or their camels or whatever it was and they took off on something that would take months and months and months of their lives to go do something, to go worship God. It's pretty impressive. This thing that they did to travel like this, to pack things up, it changed more than just their day or their week. It changed their lives. It altered their lives. They went on this journey and there was, all, I'm sure, all kinds of peril associated with, are we going to make it? Are we going to get robbed? Are we going to run into a sandstorm? I don't know what we're gonna, is going to happen. And then what happens when we get there? What if we can't find him? Or what if they throw us in jail? Or what's going to happen? We don't know. There was all this uncertainty and yet they did it anyway. They altered their lives to worship God. So we could see they chose intentionally to do that. And we also should intentionally alter our lives to worship God. I think that's the call from this passage. And can you see how this is different from our culture? In our culture, we just want to take worship. Oh, honoring God, I want to sort of put it into the little box. I want to have it at the time that I want and the place that I want with the frequency that I want when I feel like it. These guys went and said, we got to go do this. It changes our lives. They got real intentional and they altered their lives to do it. Worship is a choice, but it's not going to be a choice that's about convenience or ease. I hope we can learn that from this passage. It's a choice, it's a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. That's a big deal. And a lifestyle isn't about convenience 
It isn't about comfort. It's about a response to what God has done and who God is. And so we should strive to be intentional, just like the wise men. Second thing I think we can learn about worship from these guys is that they were genuine. They were very genuine. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him, bring me word that I, Herod, too, may come and worship him. So, in this case, we're, we're contrasting the wise men and Herod. I think it's interesting, right? Look at that. This is Herod talking, right? And he says, what? Uh, go and search diligently. You guys go and search diligently. And it's like... As if they wouldn't. <laughs> They've traveled a thousand miles. They're like, well, we didn't find him. I guess we'll go back. <laughs> right? I don't know. Did any of you go see the eclipse last year? Anybody go up? Somebody went up there, right? It was like you had to drive. From here, it wasn't that far, right? You know, a few hundred miles. But people travel from all over. There's probably like this huge chunk of a population in this, this line of across the country to watch a total eclipse. So you can imagine going through all of that work and I'm going to get in the car and go and figure out how I'm going to lodge and I'm going to deal with traffic and get this. And you go up there and you sit down, you put on the glasses and you look up and it starts to eclipse and you go, yeah, that's cool. And you get in your car and drive home. Right? You're kind of like, no, you came to see the eclipse. I bet almost every single person stayed until there was there was, nothing, there was no more <laughs> moon in front of the sun. Well, I think it's kind of the thing I love it here. Go and search diligently. Like, oh, no, we were just going to be kind of half-hearted, and then <laughs> we'll just go home. Right? I love that. But they're very genuine in going about this. And I think we look at Herod, and we go, well, ask that question. Did Herod really want to worship Jesus? I don't know. We, we could look at the passage, and we go, well, he goes on and he, he kills the babies, so he, he probably wasn't really looking to worship. But he says it, and I go, well, maybe he sort of thought he did. Maybe he sort of thought he did. Maybe he thought there would be something in it for him if he found the Christ. Yeah, you go find the Christ, and then show me, and maybe there'll be something in it for me. But if we take that line of thinking and we say, yeah, he was trying to do that, then we see that Herod was not really interested in expressing reverence or honor for God, was he? So it's kind of a false worship. It was a worship for his own gain. He was trying to give something to get something. Herod was not interested in God's glory. He was interested in his own glory. Look at me. I found the Christ. So we can see that Herod was not genuine in his worship of God. He was not genuine. And unfortunately, this is not something that's just reserved for dictatorial, power-hungry kings. It's for you and me. We also can be not genuine. We can worship, but kind of for our own glory. And that's kind of a hard thing. I mean, we have to think through our own lives and our own circumstances, but I was trying to think through what might be some examples of ways that we want to offer worship to God, but we're really doing it for ourselves. Well, one idea is, is, is kind of that sense of, look at me, look at me, look at me. And we can do that when we're singing. We can do that when we're praying. We always try to be very careful, and I so appreciate our band and the folks who are in our band, is that what they're doing on stage is an outflow of their private worship or their worship when they're out in the seats. 
We aren't looking for people who just want to be seen or be on stage because that's not being genuine in worship. Another idea is the idea of giving and, and giving unto the Lord and giving to the church and giving to other organizations. That can definitely be worship and saying, I am giving glory to you, God. And we go, yeah, oh yeah, giving is good, but what is your heart? Because we have this thing in this country which is called the tax deduction. And a lot of times we go, oh, I'm going to give so I can get a tax deduction and worship God. Well, the tax deduction is nice, but I think we've got to sort of check our hearts there and say, would I still give to the Lord? Would I still give out of worship to God if I didn't get that? Where's our heart of worship on that? It can be the same way with serving. Oh, I'm going to serve in the church. I'm going to volunteer my time with that organization or do that thing. And are you doing that? To worship God and show reverence and honor to God? Are you doing it so you can put it on your resume or put it on your Facebook page or like that? Those are hard, hard questions. I know they're convicting for me. So are we going to be like Herod or are we going to be like the Magi? Worship was their pursuit. Worship was their aim. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They made worship their pursuit. They were in pursuit of giving honor to God. Clearly, they were genuine. And I think that's an encouragement for us from this passage that we too should be genuine in how we worship God. The third thing, the last thing I think we can learn about worship in this passage we look at these guys as that they were unreserved. They were unreserved in their worship. Again, going into the house, they saw the, the child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Their worship takes on <clears throat> two characteristics here. The first one is that idea there. It says, offering gifts. They offered him gifts. As a form of worship. And it's important that it's here in this passage. And <clears throat> now I think we think of the gifts, maybe we think of it in kind of a Christmassy way of, oh, I, I get the gifts and I go to Walmart or I go to Target or I go to Amazon or I'm going to go and I'm going to get gifts and I'm going to go give them to the people. And I go, that's a nice thing and that's a good thing and it's good to give gifts. But these guys didn't do that. <clears throat> they didn't say, oh, we found Jesus, we're going to run down to the market and we'll be right back. They opened up their treasures. These are their treasures, their gold. This is expensive stuff. And they opened it up from their own treasury and said, Here, we give it to you in worship. Wow, that's a little bit different. That's a little bit different. This is valuable, precious stuff. This was a sacrifice of what was important and valuable to these guys. They were unreserved in giving this up. So that was one characteristic of their worship. A second one, we see there, it doesn't say, and they worshipped him. It says, and they fell down and worshipped him. Fell down. See, they weren't just like, oh, yeah, hey, Jesus. They were like, oh, i got to bow down. It wasn't like, well, let me, uh, I'm just going to kind of bow down here. They probably fell on their faces. They were like, this is God. They probably looked a little bit foolish. When you think about it, these guys were nobles. They were a priestly class. Most people were probably bowing down to them or showing them reverence and honor. And they went into this place, this sort of probably what was a humble situation. You know, if it wasn't the stable, I'm sure it was their home and it wasn't a palace. It's this very simple home of a carpenter. 
And they showed up, and there was this baby, and these guys who were probably very wealthy and very high on the social ladder fell on their faces to worship God. Despite any reasonable objections, they were unreserved. They fell down and worshiped God. But I want to draw one other parable, or one other parallel to this story. And these guys fall down. Oh, they fell down in worship. Well, let's go back and remember that, oh yeah, these are the nobles as part of the priestly class and the wise men, and we trace their lineage all the way back to that time when Daniel is there and the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. Who else was there with Daniel? You remember those three other guys with the funny names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those guys, they also were with Daniel and these wise men. Do you remember the story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I want people to do what? Worship me. So what did he do? He built a big statue of himself and he said, all right, we're going to play all the music. When the music plays, everybody has to bow down to me, to my statue. Because I'm not big enough, the statue needs to be bigger or something. I don't know. That's what they did. And so what happens? The music plays and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, nope, not going to do it. They're not going to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. He takes him and he's like, for punishment for this, because you won't bow down, you won't worship me, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And they're like, well, we can't worship anybody except the true God, so throw us in the fire. And so he takes him and he throws him in the fire. hope you like my paraphrase of this. Right? He throws him in the fire. God protects him. They come out. Nebuchadnezzar is like, wow, nobody should worship anybody except the true God. Well, this class of wise people, these wise men, they saw that. And so don't you think on down through the centuries, these guys would know, we're not going to fall down before anybody except the true God. And they walk into this room, and they see this baby, and what do they do? They fall down and worship. They were unreserved because they knew who they were facing. And so if they were unreserved, I think we need to ask that question for ourselves. Will we be unreserved? Will I be unreserved in my worship? Will I fall down on my face before God, the creator of the universe? I think that's what we should do. So just to review here, and we'll close, the wise men give us a model for how we should worship. And again, we're not talking about worship of singing songs on Sunday morning, although that is a piece of worship. We're talking about paying reverence and honor to God So the encouragement to us is to be intentional. Be intentional in our choices. Be intentional in our choices of how we worship God. Second, be genuine. Be genuine in showing Him reverence. And if you can't be genuine, then maybe it's time to go back to who is God. And third there, be unreserved. Be unreserved in your praise of God. I hope that's encouraging to you. I'll pray and we'll close. Now, thanks, God, that you put all of this right here in this little passage of 12 verses in the second chapter of Matthew. God, I thank you for speaking to my heart this week about worship and what it means to pay honor to you. God, I think there's all these other things we can think about this passage and gift giving and what do these things mean and who are these guys. And God, I just to me, it just comes back to worship. God, I ask that today you would help me 
be intentional. Help me to make choices with my life. Help me to be genuine in worshiping you. Help me to be unreserved in showing you honor with my life right where I'm at. Lord, I love that at the end that it says they returned home. Just like the shepherds went back to their fields and continued to worship. And these wise men went back to Persia. As far as we know, they went back and continued to worship you. Right where they're at. Help us to worship you right where we're at each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.